Hey, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As you know, we're in a series entitled Thinking Straight in a Crooked World. Last week, we looked at the problem of evil, part one. This week, we look at the problem of evil, part two. As you observe the evil and the suffering that is so prevalent in our world today, do you ever find yourself wanting to ask God some questions? Questions like these. God, you're all good. You are all powerful. How could you create such a messed up world? Or or a question like this. God, you can do anything. Why don't you put a stop to all the suffering and evil that's taking place in the world today? Or, or maybe this question. This is a question a lot of people have. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, this is generally considered to be the number one issue in the world today that causes people to reject God or to turn away from the faith. Last week, we looked at some very important key truths about the problem of evil. Now, I'm an old football coach, so I believe in repetition. So we're going to rehearse a, a few of those things we looked at last week to make sure that we've got a good foundation for what we're going to look at today. Remember last week, we said that Satan is the originator of evil, not God. God did not create evil. Satan originated evil, and evil started not in paradise there in the Garden of Eden, but evil started in heaven itself when Satan and a group of angels rebelled against the sovereign holy God. They were cast out of heaven. The second thing we looked at last week that's a very important thought, a very important truth, is that evil is the absence of righteousness. Evil is the absence of righteousness just like darkness is the absence of light. God didn't create this thing called evil. Evil is the absence of righteousness. It happens when people rebel against God's word, God's will, and God's way. Now, chapter 3 of Genesis is one of the most important chapters in the Bible because there's so much in this chapter that shapes our worldview. By the way, everybody has a worldview. You have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. But it's very important that your worldview is shaped by the Bible and the truth of God instead of the the various things that speak into worldviews in our world today. Now listen, chapter 3 takes us from the perfect world that God designed, and we studied about that in Genesis 1 and 2, to the broken world that we see all around us today. Now, the problem of evil is addressed throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, 
The Bible says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his, the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Now that's just a few chapters away from where we are today. In Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13, the Bible says this of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. In Isaiah chapter five, verse 20, the Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We're seeing a lot of that happen in our world today. In Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13, the fear of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord is to hate evil. Let me ask you, do you hate evil? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul wrote, abstain from every form of evil. Now, God didn't create the world and allow it to devolve into evil without directly intervening. That's, why, that's a big truth that you need to get fixed in your heart today. Last week, we examined how this abrupt change from a perfect world to a fallen world occurred. Last week, we looked at four big thoughts. We looked at the serpent in Genesis chapter three, verse one, that serpent in paradise was Satan masquerading in the body of a, a, a serpent. And then number two, we looked at the seduction, Genesis chapter three, verses one through five, when Satan tempted Eve and tempted Adam. And then we look, number three, at the sin, Genesis chapter three, verse six, Adam and Eve directly disobeyed God. God said, don't eat from the tree uh, in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's exactly what they did. And then we looked at the shame in verse seven. Look at chapter three, verse seven for just a moment. When they disobeyed God, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverage or covering for their private parts. You see, that's what sin does, folks. Satan will lie to you. He will trick you. He will deceive you into thinking that sin is not harmful. But I can tell you this, sin is, is terribly harmful when you choose to disobey God, I promise you. And it brings shame and it brings guilt. Now I want us to pick up today with verse eight. We stopped last week with verse seven. Let's pick up with verse eight. So we've seen the serpent, the seduction, the sin, the shame. Now I want us to see number five, the separation. The separation, look at verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Understand this, Adam and Eve now had a conscience. They had the ability to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And in, excuse me, instead of seeking God, they tried to conceal their shame and their guilt 
and their presence from him. They tried to hide from God. Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe you can hide from God? God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. God is omnipotent. He has all power. There's no way that you or I could ever hide from God or hide anything from God. He knows everything. Today, people try to conceal their shame and their guilt before the Lord by appearing to be religious, by doing good works, or by supporting good causes. It it didn't work for Adam and Eve, and I promise you, it will not work for you or me either. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, look at the next verse. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, do you think that God didn't know where Adam and Eve were? He knew exactly where they were. Well, why did God ask this question? This was a question for Adam and Eve to look in their own heart and see where they were spiritually. God knew exactly where they were physically. He knew exactly where they were spiritually. But he wanted them to examine their own hearts. God's question to Adam is still sounding across the world in the human race today. Maybe God's asking you today, where are you? Where are you? I'll tell you, that question is the the sound, the call of God's justice, which cannot overlook sin. It's the call of God's sorrow, which grieves over the sinner. It's the call of God's love, which offers redemption to those who have openly rebelled against God and sinned against God. Let me ask you, is God calling out to you today? Is he saying to you today, where are you? He's asking you that question in your spirit, in your conscience, so you'll examine where you are spiritually. Where are you? Do you know? Do you care? Look at verse 10. So Adam answered God. By the way, if God asks you a question, you're going to answer the question one way or the other. I promise you. So here's what Adam said. I heard the sound of you in the garden. Now remember before this time, back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says that God would come into the garden of Eden and God would have open fellowship with Adam and Eve. They were perfect. They were without sin. And God would fellowship with them. Can you imagine some of the conversations that Adam and Eve had with the creator God? But notice here, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid. The first time that ever happened for Adam and Eve, I was afraid. Because I was naked. So I hid myself. Now, understand this. From the moment God created Adam and created Eve, they had been without clothes. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But what changed? Why is it here in chapter 3 that now... 
Adam says to God, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I'll tell you what changed. Sin. Sin. They had rebelled against the living and holy and just God. By the way, that's what sin will do to you. Sin will cause you to want to hide from God. Sin will cause you to feel shame and guilt and to feel a fear of God. Not not a healthy reverence fear, but a mortal fear of God. Listen, do you remember what Satan told Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 5? Look at it. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, friend, I'm going to tell you, their eyes were opened, all right. Their eyes were opened to good and evil. And I'll tell you what, evil flooded their hearts. These two have been perfect, who have been perfectly right with God were now separated from God. Here's an interesting thing. Adam didn't seek God, but don't miss this. God sought Adam. Is that not wonderful? Aren't you glad that God seeks after sinners? Aren't you glad that God comes after us when we fail, when we neglect him, when we disobey him, when we're ready to give up on ourselves? God never gives up on us. He comes after us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, look at it. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Now, once again, you've got to understand, God knows the answer to all these questions before he asks them. But it's very important that Adam and Eve deal with these questions. So God says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You, you got to understand, God held Adam responsible for the fall of the human race, not Eve. However, he would deal with Eve also. Now, this was their chance to confess their sin and to get right with God. God is gracious and compassionate. And he will forgive our sins and redeem us. In fact, in Proverbs 28, 13, the Bible says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You know what God wanted Adam and Eve to do? He wanted them to confess and forsake their sin so he could show compassion to them. He wanted their lives to count for him. I'm reminded of David after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, brutally murdered. He cries out to God in Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Get this here. Listen, David. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak. 
and blameless when you judge. Adam and Eve stood face to face with the holy and just God. And they were convicted of their guilt and their shame before him. How would they respond? But here's an even more important question. How will you respond in the presence of a holy and just God? How will you respond? Now, the sixth thing I want you to see as we work our way through chapter three is what I call the stonewalling, the stonewalling. Adam and Eve were asked questions designed to bring them to confession and repentance, but they compounded their sins by blaming other people for their own failure. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse 12. Here's what Adam said to God. Adam said, I quote, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So instead of Adam doing what David did, saying, God, I confess to you, I've blown it, I've sinned. God, forgive me, cleanse me. You know what Adam said to God? He said, God, it's your fault. Seriously. He said, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. And and then he turned around and he blamed it on Eve. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam blamed God. He blamed Eve. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Now, when God turned his attention to Eve, who did she have to blame? She blamed it on the devil. The old Flip Wilson statement, you know, the devil made me do it. That's what Eve said. The devil made me do it. It's his fault. It's the devil's fault. Now, since Adam and Eve made their debut as the first members of the human race, the, 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 the entire human race had been bitten by what I call, listen, the blame bug. The blame bug. You, you know what we do when we sin against God or, or we fail God in any way? We blame it on somebody else. Well, it's not my fault that I'm an alcoholic. It's not my fault. Or or someone would say, I know I shouldn't lose my temper, but that's the way God made me. We blame it on God. Or I know I shouldn't drink so much, but the stress is getting to me. Or I know I shouldn't view this porn, but my wife has let herself go. We blame it on our wives. Or I know I shouldn't do this TikTok challenge but I don't want to miss out. That's what teenagers are saying today, many of them today. We've got to quit making excuses for our sins and our failures. You know what we need to do when we fail God? We need to own up to it. We need to say, God, it's me. I can't blame it on my wife. I can't blame it on you. I can't blame it on my circumstances. I can't blame it on my environment. I can't blame it on the political Uh, nature of the world today. Lord, it's me. I'm the problem. I blew it. 
I'll tell you what, if you'll learn to do that, when God's Holy Spirit convicts you, it will take you a long way to the victory that God wants you to experience. I want you to notice something significant. God doesn't ask Adam and Eve any other questions after they admitted that they had ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No more questions. And that leads, seventh here, to the sentencing. The sentencing. Now, we've got to learn to think straight in a crooked world. So many people in our world today assume that they are not accountable to God. That they assume that they can do anything they want to do. They can think anything they want to think. They can feel anything they want to feel. And they're not accountable to God. Why, why God would never judge a person, they say. I beg to differ. Let, let me tell you this very clearly. It, this helps shape your worldview, by the way. God will judge sin in our lives. He will, and he does. If we fail to live according to his word, his will, and his way, you better believe that God's going to come after us, and he's going to convict us, and he's going to confront us about the sin, and he's going to bring the consequences of that sin to bear in our lives. Let's look at the sentencing here. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. So the, the first thing God does, he pronounces a, a sentence upon the devil himself, the serpent. He said, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. If, if, you're, if you write in your Bible or underline your Bible, underline that word, those words, cursed are you. More than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So the first part of God's sentence here deals with the serpent itself physically. Th that serpent would be crawling on its belly for the rest of eternity, rest of, of, of life on earth and eating dust. There's also a spiritual sense here in that it pictures Satan himself being forced to eat the dust of frustration eternally. Donald Gray Barnhouse made this statement, I quote, he said, to eat dust is to know defeat. And, and that is God's prophetic judgment upon the enemy. He will always, speaking of the devil, he will always reach for his desires and fall just short of them. There will be continuous aspiration, but never any attainment. I want you to put yourself in Adam and Eve's sandals or whatever they were wearing at the time. Th think about this. So they're there, and, and they hear God pronounce his judgment upon this physical serpent. And they witness the terrifying transformation of this once beautiful creature into a hissing, slithering, dangerous creature that we call a snake. Can you imagine the horror that must have gripped the hearts of Adam and Eve as they witnessed this terrifying transformation? I wonder if they didn't think to themselves, 
whoa, we're fixing to catch it. I wonder what God's going to do to us if he did this to the snake. My goodness. Let's get down to verse 16 to 19. Let's look at the, the judgment that God pronounced upon Eve. So we're skipping verse 15. Trust me, I'm coming back to it in just a minute. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, there's two aspects here of God's judgment upon the woman Eve. Number one, God said, you will have pain in childbirth. Now, obviously, I'm not a woman, but I've been in the room when Darlene gave birth to my, both my kids, and I saw pain, real pain. I, I'm over here, and I'm trying, Darlene, you got to breathe, and she, shut up, Chuck, shut up, Chuck. <laughs> and she didn't want to hear anything. She just wanted me to pat her on the back and love on her and but don't coach her. Even though she carried, drug me to all these classes where I'm supposed to do all this coaching, and once we get in there and the fire is, is, is really burning, she, she, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Pain in childbirth. But there's another aspect of this judgment that God pronounced upon Eve. He, he said to her, Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, when God created the world, when he created Adam and Eve and he brought them together in the Garden of Eden there in chapter 2, it was a perfect harmonious relationship. They loved each other. They cared for each other. They were committed to each other. It was perfect. They had perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect contentment with the roles that God had assigned to each of them. But with the introduction of sin into their hearts and their lives, their thinking and their emotions and their will were all twisted up. And the woman's desire would be to control her husband while he would rule over her. Harmony was replaced with tension and discord. Now, I would say this to every person within the sound of my voice. If you want to have a great marriage, you need Jesus involved in your marriage. Amen. Only Jesus can help you to have the kind of marriage that God wants you to have. That's why I'm big on premarital counseling. That's why I'm big on making sure that we use biblical principles when we get married and we operate according to God's will, his word, and his way. Now, now look at verses 17 to 18. Let's look at what, how God judged Adam. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, men, don't take that and run with it, okay? <laughs> I would advise you to listen to the voice of your wife at least most of the time. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice. What did Eve say to Adam? Evidently, she said, Adam, man, this fruit is the tastiest fruit in the garden. The juice is just exploding in my mouth. 
Here, Adam, have a bite. Remember, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God told them not to eat from. And Adam listened to Eve. And he took a bite. And because of Adam, the Bible says, the perfect world became a fallen world. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Now, underline those four words, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the, of the field. Do you see the grace of God in this verse? God cursed Satan. But if you'll notice, God did not curse Adam and he did not curse Eve. He didn't. However, he curses the ground from which Adam would get food for him and his family. He would have to work hard to harness the fruitfulness of the ground, the fruitfulness of the plants in order to feed his family. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, let me say this to you. Don't miss this. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be immortal, to live forever. It was not God's will that Adam and Eve would ever die. But God told them, the minute you eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. You will die. Now, spiritually, they died the very moment they disobeyed God. They were spiritually dead. And physically, Adam and Eve began the process of dying immediately. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. Look at this. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And what does the last three words of that verse say? And he died. And he died. Man, how gracious was God that he would allow Adam to live for 930 years. He allowed him to have kids and and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids and great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. 930 years. But God kept his promise, didn't he? He said, when you eat from the tree that I tell you not to eat from, you will die. And that process of dying began immediately when they started down the road of rebellion. So far in this crucial chapter of the Bible, we've seen the serpent, the seduction, the sin, the shame, the separation, the stonewalling, and the sentencing. Now let's go back to verse 15. And I want you to see the solution, the solution. Verse 15, look at it with me. Here's what God says. He said, I will put enmity. He said, God says this to the serpent. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. By the way, what does he mean by the seed of the serpent? Well, the seed of the serpent are those in the world since the days of Adam and Eve have rejected God. They've rejected God's word. They've rejected God's will. That's the seed of Satan. Jesus experienced the seed of Satan when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came against him and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. That's the seed of Satan. But notice he says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. You need to make sure that you understand this is prophetic. You see, God knew all along how he was going to handle good and evil. He knew all along how he was going to handle the sin and suffering that so many people get all twisted out of shape about in today's culture. God knew. Now, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts, and we've got to remember that. But God knew. Now, the seed of the woman refers to the virgin-born Son of God who would come to save his people from their sins. Look at Galatians 4.4. The Bible says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. The Lord Jesus would triumph over Satan. He would bruise Satan. By the way, what, what, what is more deadly, a bruise on the heel or a bruise on the head? Obviously, it's a bruise on the head, right? And, and God said to the serpent, you'll bruise him on the heel. That's the cross. That's the cross. And, and he will bruise you on the head. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. When you were dead in your transgressions, and the circumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In Romans 16, 20, I love what Paul said. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. I encourage you, listen to me very carefully. Don't blaspheme God by claiming that he's done nothing about evil and suffering. He paid the ultimate price for evil and suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't tell me God's not done anything about evil and suffering. God has paid the ultimate price to handle evil and suffering once and for all. So Christ went to the cross 
to crush Satan's head, to bruise Satan's head. And Christ was raised from the dead three days later, and God exalted him to his throne in heaven. Now, I want to say this to you, and I don't want you to ever forget this. The only solution to evil is Jesus. Write that down in your Bible. Write, memorize it. And when atheists or agnostics come against you or, or, or those who question God, you say to them, the only solution to evil is Jesus. Not politics. Jesus. Only Jesus. In the not so distant future, Jesus will come again. He's coming. I'm telling you, he's coming. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth that will be eternally free from all evil and all suffering. We read about it in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It's, it's paradise restored. There will be no sin, no tears, no death, no grief, no disease, and no pain. And those who believe in Jesus will live in a perfect paradise forever and ever and ever. Glory to God. Jesus is the only solution to evil. Now listen, I'm running out of time. All right. You can overcome Satan and the evil of this present world system by confessing your sin and brokenness to God and by turning to Jesus in saving faith. You may be here today, say, Pastor, you don't know the hurt and pain that I'm going through or that I've gone through in my life. Pastor, I grew up in a home and my dad wasn't there. Or, or Pastor, I grew up in a home and I was sexually abused. And that pain is with me to this moment. I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, God loves you. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you could have victory over the hurt and pain that you've experienced in your life. And if you will turn to Jesus today and believe in him as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive your sins. He will give you the gift of eternal life. And you can know that you know that you know that one day you're going to live in paradise with him forever and ever. It just don't get any better than that. And then look, if you're here today and you're a believer and your worldview is being skewed by the problem of evil, and you've read some of these books by atheists, and you've read other books by critics of God, don't allow the enemy to deceive you by calling into question the word of God or the love of God. That's exactly what he did in the garden with, with Eve. He called into question the word of God, the love of God. Resist the devil's sinister ploys to render you totally ineffective for the kingdom. 
come to this altar today and nail down your convictions. Say to the Lord Jesus right here at this altar, Heavenly Father, I believe your word. I believe that you love me. Help me to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that my toil is not in vain in you. Hey, I want to remind you of something. I heard a, about a cartoon that pictured two turtles. And one says to the other, sometimes I'd like to ask why God allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. The other turtle said to the first turtle, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. So let me ask you, if you're a believer, what are you doing about the evil in the world? Are, are you making a difference? Are you reaching out to hurting people, demonstrating the love of God to them, demonstrating the hope of the gospel that we've talked about today? Oh, my soul, God saved us to be difference makers. Hey, would you bow your heads, please? I'm going to ask our staff to come, our worship team to come. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I just want you to think about what we talked about. This is so important. Do you need to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord today? I'm telling you, he's the only solution to evil. Come to Christ. Our staff is here. All you got to do is come to a staff member, tell them, hey, I, I want to believe in Jesus today. I need Jesus. You come. And if you're a believer today and you're struggling as you shape your worldview and you want a biblical worldview, you come to this altar and you ask the God of heaven to help shape your convictions and to make them strong and powerful, impenetrable by the power of the enemy. And you pray that God would make you steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Ask God to show you how you can make a difference in people today who are hurting, who people, people who have experienced the, the pain and suffering of evil in their lives. You come to this altar. In fact, I want to ask, these messages last week and this week are so important. I want to ask a group of people, when, when I pray and, and the invitation starts, I, I, I want a group of people to come up here and just pray that the Spirit of God would use this word in people's lives and that people will respond in obedience. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the only solution to evil. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would move in the hearts and minds and souls of men, women, boys and girls today, and that you would accomplish your purposes. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.